Well, tonight we're going to talk about probably the most <coughs> the most common um, debated subject within the church, and that is the role of God's sovereignty and man's freedom. Um, some of the popular words you hear a lot of times are words like predestination, um, election. Uh, these are pretty hot buzzwords um, within the church because a lot of people have very strong opinions about them. Uh, so strong, in fact, that you know when I was in seminary, in my theology class, we were talking about predestination, election, free will, and a huge debate erupted in the classroom. I think I told Ron about this. And um, between these two guys, one was a very strong Calvinist who believed in total sovereignty and God determines all things. And the other guy in the class was an Arminian. He believed in man's free will and free choices. And it got so bad, they actually went to blows in the classroom and started throwing fists. And so when they both got taken to the dean's office, the dean ended up kicking the Arminian out of school because he had a choice to fight, whereas the Calvinist didn't. It's probably the last laugh we'll have tonight, so enjoy that one. All right. Um, but seriously, that's, uh, that's kind of the energy that sometimes people will get. I remember in my younger years when I was, when I was uh, in my, gosh, early 20s, mid-20s, that was like the topic to kind of cut your teeth on was predestination, election, free will. And I spent countless meaningless hours uh, <laughs> debating it with people. And uh, I've been all over the map on where I fall. Um, and tonight, you may or may not know where I fall, but what I want to do tonight is I want to present each position, okay, as if I believe it, because I do, in one sense, believe it, and I want you guys to interact with me on this, all right? Um, Calvinism, all right? How many, just curious, all right, uh, how many w- would, as of now, you've heard the term Calvinism, and you would say that, yeah, I would place myself within that camp, as far as I understand it. I would be considered a Calvinist. Okay? Um, Let's get you all on this side tonight. How many of you would say, no, you know, as far as I know and understand Arminianism, um, I would consider myself an Arminian? Okay? How many of you don't know enough about either term that you're not really sure where you are yet? Okay, we'll put you in one of those camps tonight. So you guys, this is an exciting night for you. You get to finally be called a Calvinist or an Arminian tonight. Uh, how many of you would say you're a Molinist? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, well, you'll learn about Molinism tonight, okay? That's a, that's a third position, which uh, I'm actually very, very sympathetic to, and um, I'll show you why it's the correct position in just a minute. Okay, Calvinism, um, essentially, um, it's been reduced into five major points. Okay, Bill, what's the acronym that's used for Calvinism? TULIP. Nice. See, it takes, they use a flower to kind of take the edge off of you a little bit. Okay. Um, TULIP. Excuse me. Now, each of these stands for a particular doctrine within this view of Calvinism. Now, Calvin, John Calvin, one of the main reformers uh, out, of, um, out of Geneva, he he didn't come up with this term tulip. So it wasn't like he, in his systematic theology, came up with tulip and put this together. This was something that was done basically years afterwards trying to summarize his thought. And it's important to understand that in, in Calvin's systematic theology, he only gave four little chapters to this subject. Okay? His biggest chapter was on the nature of the church. So he didn't give a lot of 
he didn't spend a lot of time on this because he considered it one of the great mysteries of God. But out of that entire huge theology, the Institutes of Christian Religion that Calvin wrote, people have essentially reduced his entire commentary to a commentary on the sovereignty of God. Um, And so what they've done is they've broken it down into five major points. Now, Calvinism's starting point is this. This is key. Their starting point is the sovereignty of God, okay? So if if you have a pen, you want to take notes? This is what it all comes down to, all right? The sovereignty of God. That is the starting point of Calvinism. The starting point of Arminianism is that God desires all men to be saved. Everybody. Okay, that's the starting point of Arminianism. So just remember those starting points as we go through this. Um, Who knows what the T stands for in TULIP? There you go. T stands for total depravity. Okay? Total depravity. Uh, If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in them a little bit. Let me show you a couple passages that are popular. Uh, Look at the book of Romans. Okay, Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. And let's kind of see what we mean by total depravity. In chapter 3, in verses 11 and 12, Paul says this. He says, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. So this is where you get the idea of total. That every human being, in every capacity of who they are, their mind, their will, their emotions, every aspect of their being has been depraved, okay? That, uh, what, do we mean, what do we mean by depraved or depravity? What does that mean? Affected by sin, okay? So therefore, every aspect of mankind has been depraved and has been affected by sin so that there is nothing in man in himself because he's dead. There's nothing in man that seeks for God. You see that in Romans 3? Uh, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned away, they've become useless. And he goes on, their throat is an open grave, they deceive with their tongues. The idea is, according to total depravity, that there's nothing in a human being left to himself that would ever seek God on his own. Because left to himself, he's dead. Okay? Ephesians says, for you were dead in your trespasses or in your sins, but God, being rich in mercy... See, God enters in. But left to ourselves, we are utterly dead and depraved, okay? So that's total depravity. What's the U stand for? Unconditional election. Okay, unconditional. What that means is that a person's salvation has absolutely nothing to do with them. That there is no condition that man had to meet in order to be saved. That the only reason a person is saved is why? What would it be? What's that? Because God calls them right. Look with me here a couple texts. Look at Romans chapter 9. Just flip to your right. Romans 9. Verse 16. Paul argues in Romans 9, he says, So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. 
Verse 18. So then he shows mercy to whom he wills, and he hardened whom he wills. And then he goes on in verse 22 to 24, and he says, And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us whom he also called, not only from Jews, but also from the Gentiles? So you see what Paul says in Romans 9? The argument is, what role did you play in your salvation? Bill, what did you play? None. Uh, we got two bills here. That's right. We've got two bills here. Uh, in fact, uh, D.L. Moody was once asked, what role did you play in your salvation? And he said, I sinned, and I sinned well. That was his role. I just did the part of the sinning. God did everything else. And so election, according to Calvinism, is unconditional. It has nothing to do with man. It has everything to do with God. Okay, do you understand why that is? It's because man's total depravity has done what to his desire to seek God? It's negated it, right? So man left to himself will not seek God. See how these are connected? Okay, these are logical connections. So the next one here, now, now not all Calvinists, let me put a star by this one or a little asterisk. Not all Calvinists believe the L, okay? Um, some of the harder core ones do. But what's L? Limited atonement. And this is more of a logical deduction, <coughs> more of a logical deduction from this, okay? If all men are depraved and none seek God, and if the only reason any person is saved is because God intervenes and saves them and chooses them and not, not another person, then that means that the atonement that Christ offered is offered to who only? Only to the elect. Only to those people that God chose in his divine sovereignty to elect unto salvation. So Christ did not die for the whole world. He only died for who? He only died for the chosen. The few, the chosen, the Marines, the few, the chosen, all right? And that's who God, God dies for. So what they do is they would take, for instance, a passage like John 3.16, which says what? Yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And people would immediately say, well, wait a minute. That clearly shows that God loved the world that he gave Jesus, that whosoever believes in him. Well, what do you suppose the Calvinists will do with that text to try to make it fit within this theological construct? What's that? Well, not just that God knew, but they'll actually take the word world, right? And they'll say that the word world there isn't universal in extent. It's the world of all believers. It's the world of all the elect. For instance, there's times in your Bible when the word all or world is used, but it doesn't mean the entire globe. Okay? It means a local geographic region. For instance, when the, uh, the Gospels say that all of the world came to, to, for the census. Remember that during the time of Jesus and Mary and Joseph had to come to Bethlehem for the census? And it says all the world came. Well, does that mean that people from China and India were getting on boats? So who is all the world that it's talking about? The Jewish and the Roman world, because it was a Roman census, so the entire Roman Empire. So even though it says all the world in language, the context means what? All of the geographical reference point that it's referring to. So 
the Calvinists will say that things like John 3.16 simply are saying, for God so loved the elect, the world of all those who would believe, that he gave his only begotten son for them. Yeah, well, it potentially could, because the Arminian would say that, why do you throw out whosoever believes in him if the whosoever is already decided? See, it doesn't make any sense to say whosoever, because that would be redundant. So if God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's all that needs to be said, because that's the world of the elect. The Arminian says, wait a minute, the whosoever passage is the passage that actually takes the legs out from under him, because that means the whosoever are people who would or may not believe. So whosoever. But we're going to get there in a minute when we get to the Arminian position, all right? So, you guys understand total depravity? Unconditional election? The logical deduction of limited atonement? Okay, now again, um, not everyone is an L. A lot of people are what we call four-point Calvinists. Okay? Not five. A five-point Calvinist, uh, they've got fangs, so you can see them. All right? Um, Just kidding. Um, The five-point Calvinist is typically... um, a very logical person. He's arguing this on the basis of a logical deduction, not necessarily out directly out of Scripture. Okay? The I, what's the I stand for? That's right. Ear, now, this is very important. Irresistible grace. Okay? And what does that mean? What does irresistible grace mean? Look at John 6.37 real quick. Let me show you one just to kind of give you a picture of John 6.37. Even though nobody asked me how I'm doing, I'm doing much better, and I'm going to be fine. So thanks for your concern. Back to John. Okay. In John 6.37, Jesus says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. So, According to the Calvinist interpretation of this passage, if the Father has given somebody to Jesus, what's going to happen? They're going to come, right? They don't really have a choice not to come because Jesus says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, okay? There's an irresistible nature to this, all right? Let me show you another one. Look at Acts 13. Acts 13. Go to your right one book. I'm going to show you one more passage here. Acts 13 and verse 48. We'll do 47 and 48 to give you a little context. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. Quote, I have appointed you as light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord And all who have been appointed to eternal life believed. Y'all see that? All who had been appointed, what did they do? They believed. All right? So the doctrine of irresistible grace says that if God has unconditionally elected you, chosen you unto salvation, that when that finally comes in the form of the Holy Spirit removing the scales from your eyes and regenerating your heart, what will will logically have to happen? You You will be drawn to him. Okay? That's irresistible grace, that you cannot resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whomever he draws, will come. Jesus says, none will snatch them out of my hand. Okay? So that's irresistible grace. 
And finally, you've got the P, and what does that stand for? Perseverance of the saints. Okay? Now, what's perseverance mean? What's, what does that mean? What's that? To press on, right. The, perseverance, the doctrine of the perseverance is the doctrine of eternal security. That, again... It's a logical deduction from this. If you are totally depraved and dead, but God has unconditionally chosen you, and Christ has died for you, part of the elect, and his grace is irresistible, and now you are regenerated and born again, then what can you never do? What's that? You can never lose your salvation. Because if it's all about God, and you are in his you are one of his elect chosen ones, then you can never lose your salvation. And it is the doctrine of perseverance, meaning you will make it all the way to the end. Uh, and for, uh, I think it's First John. John says, talking about those who departed and left them. He says, for if they were truly of us, they would have never left us. See? And so that's essentially the five points of Calvinism. Okay? And all of this is driven. Do you see why this is the starting point? Why is this the starting point for Calvinism? Connect it. How is this the thread through all of this? It's all completely in God's control. Everything. We've gone from a position of being completely dead, okay, um, all the way through. God carries us all the way through it, okay? Um, a, a passage used by, in Calvinism is Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, just to kind of give you one more verse here before we look at the Arminian position. Beginning in verse 29. Verse, chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says this. For those who God foreknew, okay, that idea of foreknowledge is, um, that the idea of knowing is loving. Um, remember it says, and Adam knew Eve, right, that idea. Um, and Rachel, or and, and Jacob knew Rachel, right? What's the idea thereof? Of intimacy, right? So the argument is this idea of God foreknowing isn't just the idea of looking down the corridors of time and looking ahead into the future. It's the idea that God has loved you from the very beginning. And so, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30. And those who he predestined, he did what? He called. And those whom he called, he did what? He justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. See? That's this right here. That's this entire scheme in Romans 8, verse 30. Okay? Is that, does that make sense? That scheme right there? Any comments or questions about this right here? Any, any one of these points? That you guys are thinking about. Yeah. Right. That's right. Um, if somebody asks you, do you know 100% certain that you're saved? The Calvinist would say what? The Calvinist would say, well, I know 100% that God has provided all the means of salvation. And therefore, if I am one of the elect, I will know because I have persevered to the end. So do you know now 100% that you are one of the elect? Do you know for certain? You don't know for certain. 
but but it doesn't mean that the work that Christ did isn't isn't complete. It just means that if I'm truly one of the elect, that I will persevere all the way to the end, and my security is is set. Um, so, and, and we're going to look at that a little bit more when we look at the Arminian perspective. All right. Okay. Um, now let's look at these five points, and why don't we go ahead and juxtapose these with Arminianism? Okay. Y'all good with that? Okay. All I'm going to do is just switch the name and contrast the other side, okay? Now, Arminianism. Now, the reason we have kind of a, a name like Arminianism is because the person who wrote was a guy named Jacob Arminius, who was writing in the 16th century, and he essentially gave his position on sovereignty, election, free will, all these things. And so a lot of when someone says, I'm an Arminian, what they're essentially saying is, I subscribe to the way that Jacob Arminius put this whole thing together, okay? Arminianism, its starting point is this. It completely embraces the sovereignty of God, but that's not its starting point. Its starting point in the areas of salvation is that God desires all mankind to be saved. Okay? God desires all mankind to be saved. That's the starting point. So, when you get to total depravity, the Arminian has to look at Romans chapter 3, and they have to make sense of that. And they have to say, well, what does that mean that none seek God? Um, none are righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of His glory. Well, the Arminian introduces a concept Okay, and the concept is what's known as the technical word is called prevenient grace, but it's also another fancy. It's just a fancy word for common. Okay, for common grace. What that means is this: because of Adam's sin and sin entering into the world, all men are dead. All of us are are dead to God. But what God does in His mercy is God offers a common or a prevenient grace, meaning before. We have the choice now to embrace the grace of God. Further, God has given us a pre-grace that in a sense neutralizes the depravity so that now all men do have a choice. Okay? And it's a grace that's given to all men. Um, You can find this, for instance, in in John uh, chapter 12. Look at John 12. John 12. Verse 32, it's one of the functions or the roles of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Well, this one's going to be Jesus. He says, as for me, well, look at verse 30. Jesus responded, the voice came not for me, but for you. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw who? All people to myself. Um, how is that possible? The Arminian says. How will Jesus draw all people to himself unless all people have the opportunity to be saved? Um, or we can go further. Look at John 16, 8. Go a couple chapters to your right. 16, 8. This is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7. We'll start in verse 7. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. 
it is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. Who's the counselor? The Holy Spirit. If I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8. When he comes, he will what? He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what's the Arminian going to say about this? What's the Arminian say? What does the Holy Spirit do? When Jesus left, what did the Holy Spirit do? It's now gone into the world to do what? To convict man of sin. But wait a minute. If man is dead, man's not going to be convicted of his sin. So what must have happened in order for man to feel convicted of his sin? There must have been some sort of prevenient or common grace that now the Holy Spirit can go out and all men now can be held accountable and feel convicted for their sin. Okay? So, they'll say it's true. Man is born totally depraved and that you're born dead, but that God comes and through common grace or prevenient grace now leaves man, you know, if you want to keep the metaphor, in a position of simply being sick. Okay? He's not merely dead. He's sick. All right? This right here, unconditional election, the Armenian will say, no, it is dependent on one thing. There is one condition for salvation. What do you think that is? What's that? Right, man's choice to exercise what? Faith. That's right. See, the Calvinists will say, no, no, faith is a work. Um, you can't do that unless God does it all for you. All right? Uh, the Arminian says, no, no, faith is not a work. Faith is simply the acceptance of something that, that God has revealed to you, and you're simply assenting and embracing it. So they would say that the condition is faith, um, and that's what I'm responsible for. And all men have the responsibility to uh, accept or reject what God has done on the basis of faith. One of the big arguments the Arminian will use is this. How can God hold men responsible for something they're incapable of doing. Um, an analogy that some Arminians will use, for instance, is, let's say you have a child that's a year old, sitting in a high chair. They sit in a high chair? One, I think they do, don't they? They sit in a little high chair? Yeah, good. All right, it's been seven years, I don't know. If your one-year-old child is sitting on a high chair, and you put a glass of milk in front of the child, and you say, now don't spill your milk, or you're going to get a spanking. Now, is that fair? Would that be fair for a parent to say to the one-year-old, don't spill the milk or you're going to get a spanking? And then let's say the one-year-old, being one, you know, has a freak-out moment, which they all do, and it knocks the milk over, and the parent spanks the child. Now, would you say that that's just or unjust? And why would you say it's unjust? Now, Bill wouldn't because Bill started spanking at three days. Um, but why would a good parent feel like, hold on, I'm going to get, hold on, hold on. Those of you who think that it's unjust, why is it unjust to spank the child? Troy, why? Okay, the child does not have the ability to do what the parent has required of the child. Okay, I, yeah, okay, I hear what you're saying on that, right. We're simply trying to establish terms of what, what is just and unjust according to the Arminian. The Arminian would say, because God is just and because God is loving, he's not merely just, that therefore God in his love would never 
require of somebody something that he's incapable of doing and then to punish him for the very thing he's incapable of doing. Um, Possibly, or maybe God doesn't hold man accountable for what they're not incapable of doing. Um, But that's the Arminian point right here, okay? Um, Is that it is determined on faith and all men have the opportunity for faith. That's why John 3.16, the Arminian would say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that what? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And the, their premise is, wait a minute, the whosoever assumes what? It assumes ability, right? So these two, to the Arminian, are connected. That you have conditional election, the condition being man's operative faith, and then you have not limited atonement, but what? Unlimited atonement. That Christ really did die for the whole world. Uh, one of the, go to First John. Let me show you a passage here for unconditional election that the Arminian uses. And actually many Calvinists do too, but let me just show it to you. First John, all the way to the right of your, the right of your New Testament. Almost to the book of Revelation. First John, Second John, Third John. Okay, y'all there? First John chapter 2, verse 2. John says, he himself <coughs> is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. Meaning Jesus is the one who has propitiated or satisfied God for our sins. And not only for ours, but who? But also for those of the whole world. So what has John just done? What's he, what has he just now distinguished? What's that? It's unlimited that, yes, the propitiation of Christ offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy a holy God, that was something he did for us. And who's the us in context? Those who have already believed us, but also for those of the whole world, meaning what? Those who haven't believed yet, right, that the offer of God through Christ has been made to all men. Okay, first John two, two right there. So their argument is that it's unlimited in scope and that faith is operative with all people because what is it that allows man to exercise faith? What did God do? He offered a common or prevenient grace unto all men, convicting the world of sin so that all men now have the opportunity to hear the glory of the gospel of God. And now they have a responsibility to make a choice. So that if they reject it, what now does God in his justice and in his love now, what, is, what can he now do? He can now punish them because they rejected something that they had the ability to obey and to do. Right, the if-thens, uh, that's a big part of the Arminian argument is that there's a lot of if-thens. If you do this, then this will happen which would not make any sense if things had already been determined according to the Arminian. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.10 is another common passage that they use. Uh, Verse 10 says this. In fact, you don't have to turn that, I'll just read it to you. In fact, we labor and strive for this because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. What does that sound like then? That Christ died for who? 
for everybody. It's unlimited. See that? So the argument would be, wait a minute. Here's the Arminian's argument. If from Scripture you can demonstrate that Christ died and made the offer for all men, what would seem to logically follow then? If the atonement is unlimited and offered to all men, what seems to follow? That all men, therefore, have an opportunity or choice. Otherwise, what sense does it make to say that Christ died and the offer is given to all men, and yet God only limits the offer to some? See, it would almost be a waste in the sense of Christ's atonement being offered to all men. So, that's kind of how they do that. Therefore, here's, here, right here, this is the rub, right here. This one right here is the rub between the Calvinists and Arminian. Okay? This is where the debate gets hot and the erasers start getting thrown. All right? Um, and I've got one eraser. The Calvinists, say it back to me, tell me why they believe in irresistible grace. Show me how that connects in their, in their argument. Why is grace irresistible according to the Calvinist? What's that? Because God, God sovereignly set it up such that you were dead, and the only reason you're alive is because he has offered this thing to you, and he has regenerated your heart, and you are not in control of that. God did the work. The Arminian says, no, no, grace is resistible, that you can resist the Holy Spirit. Because if you can't resist it, what do you think the Arminian's argument is? What does that mean about the type of love that man has for God? It's forced. The Arminian would say, wait a minute, irresistible grace is a form of, of spiritual coercion. It would be like some, some Arminians use the analogy of if you're married or if you're, you're dating somebody and you, know, you put a gun to, to her head and go, will you marry me? And she says, yes. Now, is that a fulfilling form of love? Not at all, because there's an element of, of coy. Now, some of you guys go, so what? I still got her. Right? Um, that's all right if, that's, if, that's, if you're okay with that. The Arminian would say, no, the only, the only kind of, of true love that glorifies God is love that is a chosen love, that man um, embraces the love of God because he desires to love God. Uh, a passage on, on resistible grace, by the way, that's used um, is look at Matthew 23. Okay, look at Matthew 23, verse 37. Okay, you guys there? Jesus cries out about Jerusalem. He says, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her, ch her chicks under her wings, yet you were not, what, willing. So in Jesus' own language, he seems to indicate that what was, his, what, was God, what was Christ's desire? That they would all embrace Messiah. They would all embrace what God was doing, yet because they rejected he says, you guys were not willing. Uh, Im implied in that is that you have chosen to reject. Uh, look at Luke. Go to your right. Go to your right to the Gospel of Luke. One more verse here. Luke chapter 7. 
Okay, verse 29 and 30. Luke says, And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. Verse 30. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. So what is Luke saying about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? They had a choice. An offer was made. They understood the offer as best they could, and they rejected it. And there seems to be a culpability or a responsibility in that rejection. So the Arminian says, no, the grace of God is a wonderful thing, but it's never forced. It's offered, and man now can either choose to embrace it or to reject it. And now, on perseverance of the saints, basically there's two views on Arminians. Some believe you can lose your salvation. Others believe that once you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and you've truly been saved, that you are saved forever and God will preserve you to the end. So it all depends on the, the way a person views the sealing of the Holy Spirit once the heart of an individual has been changed. Classic Arminianism says that a person can reject it. If you can, by faith, accept the gospel and be saved, then you can also choose to reject it at some point because of hardness of heart, and you can reject the gift. Um, Many Arminians reject that and say, no, once you have been regenerated and transformed by the Holy Spirit, that you are now sealed in him, and he will preserve you all the way to the end. So um, there's not... There's no unanimity on that, okay? Okay, any, any comments on the Arminian view? Do you all understand the, the, the differences between the two? Okay. Um, did you have a comment? Tell me what you think. No? What do you, what do you, as you guys see these two positions, what do you feel like um, in your mind is the, is, the, is the dividing issue here between the two? If you had to sum up what you understood tonight so far, um, what do you feel like is the crux between these two positions? What's that? Okay. Free will. Okay. Now, here's what the Calvinist would say. The Calvinist would say that anybody that thinks they don't believe in free will um, has misunderstood them. And let me explain very quickly how the Calvinist makes sense of free will. Okay. What they say basically is that Everybody is free to choose their greatest desire, okay? For instance, um, Susan, what's your favorite ice cream? Chocolate. Okay, so you guys go to, you know, he treats you to Brahms or something. And you go there and he says, baby, anything you want, right? Um, that's the way it's, what'd you say? Yeah, that's right. Anything you want, honey, right? And so she, he says, and he says, listen, you can have vanilla, you can have strawberry, you can have chocolate, baby. Whatever you want, it's yours. Well, what's your greatest desire? Chocolate. The only reason she took chocolate is because why? Yeah, now let's say hypothetically, in that moment, she decided that she was going to go with um, pralines and cream, the all-time best ice cream ever made, all right? Um, and she goes with pralines and cream, but she really loves chocolate. In that moment, when she picked pralines and cream over chocolate, what was her greatest desire in that moment? Pralines and cream. 
See? And, and Jonathan Edwards, uh, who's probably one of the most brilliant American philosophers and theologians in our history, his argument on this, and he was a, ca- a very strong, strong Calvinist, his argument was that all of us always choose our greatest desire in the moment. So you can even believe overall that something is wrong, right? Let's say you believe wholeheartedly drunkenness is wrong. I don't think it's right. I think it's against Scripture. But let's say it's one of those days, and let's say it's one of those years, all right, and you go out one night and you just decide, I'm just going to plow a few down tonight, all right, and you get drunk. In that moment, what was your greatest desire, according to Edwards? It was to get drunk over what you believe about the morality of drunkenness. You see what he says? So here's what he says. All of us are free. Okay? Freedom, freedom is what makes us uh, human beings. We're in the image of God, and therefore we are free. But because you're totally depraved, <coughs> because you're totally depraved, guess what, what one thing you don't ever have a desire for? God. See? Now, you're free to choose them. I mean, Edwards would say you're free. The reprobate, the sinner, the pagan, whatever you want to call them, the unbeliever, they are very free to embrace Christ and to follow him as Lord. But what's the problem? What's that? They don't have the desire. And why don't they have the desire? Because their heart is darkened by sin and it has not been regenerated. Okay? So he says that freedom is perf- exists perfectly well within Calvinism, and man always chooses to do what he wants to do. But as soon as God intervenes and enters into the heart of man, and this is the key word, what does regenerate mean? You've heard me say that a lot of times. What does regenerate mean? Yeah, it, it's, it, a generator is what provides the, the power or the source for things to act and to work, right? So to be regenerated means that the generator must have been what? Out of commission. It was broken. There was no power in the heart to ever want what? Or who? God. So what God has to do is he has to regenerate. And once he does that, and now your heart is open to an entire realm that you've never desired before, namely the realm of God and spiritual things, now you have what Jonathan Edwards calls, and this is the hallmark of a true believer. Edwards says this is the mark of a true believer. Okay? Um, can, you, can you go to church every Sunday and not be a believer? Yeah, it happens all the time. Can you read your Bible every day and not be a believer? Can you share the gospel and lead people to Christ and not be a believer? Can you pray every day and not be a believer? You bet you could, right? All of those things are things that can be externally done and give the image of true regeneration, but none of those are true signs of actually having been regenerated. So what do you think is the only sign of the true mark of a believer? Edward says it is what he calls, and he wrote a whole book called this, Religious What? Anybody know? Religious affections. What's another word for affection? Love. 
Suddenly, I love faith. And I love the things of God. And though I may not do them all perfectly, in fact, I may even stumble, inside of me is what? Is the desire for what? To do them. Who here um, has not read your Bible oh, for the last 40 days straight? Just be honest. Don't, no shame here. Every one of you have read your Bible 40 days straight in here? No. Would you have liked to say, I've read my Bible 40 days straight? How many of you would love to raise your hand to then and say, yeah, I read it 40 days straight? Some of you go, no, I actually wouldn't like to have read it 40 days straight. It's okay. Um, prayer. You know, if I said, how many of you here have just bathed your life for the last six months every day in your closet for an hour at a time, begging God's mercy on your life that he might do something great with you? Well, Bill's hand would be the only one that goes up. But if I said, how many of you would, would love or long for, for something like that to be a mark of your life? How many would raise your hand? See? But in your unregenerate state, okay, uh, if I said, how many of you would love to bathe your life in prayer and you're unregenerate, how many hands do you think would go up? That would be, that would be what? Yeah, that would, ugh, are you kidding me? Right? The spiritual things are of no, are not, are of no beauty to the reprobate. So what, what Edward says is this is the hallmark of a true believer. Whether he does them or doesn't, he longs and knows that he wants to do them. Okay? So freedom does exist within the Calvinist model. It's just that there's a whole area that you don't, you don't long for because your heart is unregenerate, and it needs to be regenerated. Well, because freedom does not freedom and a walk with God does not guarantee perfect choices. So they would simply say that they exercise in that moment a desire to be like God more than to obey God. Uh, but God did immediately cover them for that. Now, let me very quickly show you what the basic distinction is, and then in about six minutes I'm going to give you Molinism, and then we're going to go eat Tex-Mex after that. All right? The distinction between faith and regeneration, okay? Faith and regeneration. This is the, that's the crux right there. Which happens first, okay? The Calvinist says what? What's that? Re- yeah, the Calvinist says regeneration has to happen first because I can't operate faith or exercise faith in Christ until what? So my heart has been regenerated to now do that. So in actuality, I'm saved before I even exercise faith. Because God has done a work before I've been able to confess it with my mouth. See, a lot of times you'll hear people say, uh, if you want a relationship with Christ, come forward. We'll pray with you. And immediately you start praying the sinner's prayer. And they go, congratulations, you've just now been saved. Well, the Calvinists would say, "Uh uh-uh. Because if, if that was real, it happened when they were still in their chair. See? Because it was in that moment that finally their heart opened to say, I want to pray the sinner's prayer. But they think they're still reprobate between the chair and the altar before they say the prayer. The Calvinist says, no, it has nothing to do with the prayer. It has to do with the fact that your heart was just regenerated, and now you simply expressed it in the form of language, and now you've by faith, accepted Jesus Christ. 
The, now, the, Arme, the, the Arminian says faith precedes regeneration, right? That my heart isn't regenerated until I've done what? Until I've now exercised my faith. Till now, I've come from here, and now, in a sense, I've already made this decision of faith, and I come forward now, and I express that in the form of language. But once I have now, by my own choice, exercised faith, then my heart now becomes regenerated. See? The Calvinist hates that because they're seeing that faith and regeneration was dependent on what? On man's decision. See that? On man's decision. And the Calvinist says, this cannot be. See? So, how can a person reconcile this? Here's what the, and let me give you, just to be fair to the Arminian side, okay, because I was exactly right with the Calvinist, so let me at least balance this. Let me give you a picture language, okay, a picture of this. The Calvinist sees salvation like this. You're in the ocean, you're face down, you're dead. You've drowned, you're dead. A boat comes by, a guy sees you, he grabs you out of the water, he pulls you into the boat, he resuscitates you, gives you life. And the only reason you're living now is because why? Because the captain saved you and did all the work. All you did was die. He did all the work. And the Calvinist says that is a picture of salvation, that all men are dead in their sins. And God comes and takes dead men and resuscitates them and gives them life. And it's all the work of God. The Arminian says this. He says, no, 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 it's like this. Because of prevenient grace, okay, because of common grace, I'm not face down dead in the water, but I am doggy paddling in the middle of the ocean. And in my, in my own strength, I don't have a chance to make it to land. I am essentially dead, left to myself. And all of a sudden, a boat comes by with a captain, and he takes a life preserver, and he throws it to the essentially dead man to, in, in himself, and he says, grab the preserver. Well, if you're a proud guy and you were on the high school varsity swim team, what might you say? The heck you say, knock that thing away. I'm going to make it, right? And the Arminian says that's what some do. They reject the offer of God because they feel like they can make it apart from God. But some recognize the mercy of the captain, their inability to save themselves, and so what do they do? They grab the life preserver, and what does the captain now have to do? He has to draw them in. So now when the guy gets drawn into the boat and somebody says to the guy, oh my gosh, how in the world did you live? What would the guy say? You should have seen me. I was one doggy paddling mug, man. And, man, when that life preserver came out, you should have seen me. Man, I grabbed that with my strength, and I held on while he pulled me in. Yeah, it was a cooperative thing. We both saved me. Is that what the guy would say? What would the guy say? Why are you living? What would he say? The captain saved me. He came by, and as an act of mercy, he threw me a life preserver. I grabbed it, believing he would pull me in. He drew me in, and I'm saved because the captain saved me. See? And the Arminian says, the Calvinist can say all day long, 
that the Arminian is saying it's, it's, it's his works that are doing it. And the Arminian says, no way. Uh, all I did is embrace by faith and hold on and chose to do it. But the, but the captain gets all the glory. See how the two analogies work? Okay. That's Arminianism and Calvinism, basically in, in kind of a story form. All right. Any, any questions at all on this? Is this? Do you feel like this is a little bit clearer? Do you guys feel like you understand the differences here and how this works? Now, the fun part comes as you guys begin reading and studying your Bibles. You're going to see all kinds of passages that hit on both of these. And part of the fun of Bible study is you guys get to try to reconcile them to see what model best, you know, accounts for this. Now, that says 804. We go to 810. So I'm right on schedule. I got six minutes to introduce you to what's known as Molinism. This sounds bad, doesn't it? Molinism. And all it is is this. Molinism is a view that seeks to preserve the pure sovereignty of God and the pure freedom of man. Okay? And the way it does that is it says this, just to make it real simple. It says that God has a knowledge of every possibility that could ever exist. Every logical possibility. For instance, Bill, could God have created the world in such a way that you grew up in China? Okay, and would God, because of his omniscience, would God have known what your choices would have been in China and what your life would have looked like? Absolutely. And every one of us in this room, God could have ordained each one of us to be born anywhere in this world, and he would have known the outcome of every single person um, and every choice that we would have made. And, what, and, and here's your $64 word for that. These are called counterfactuals, okay? Just a fancy word. A counterfactual is what? You guys ever heard that term? A counterfactual? Um, I've got this big, giant, 1,500-page history book that I love, and it's called What If? And it's a book by major historians who um, speculate what would have happened if Hitler didn't try to invade Germany in the winter. I mean, uh, Hitler didn't try to invade Russia in the winter. What might have happened? What if Pilate would have set Jesus free, right? And so they go through all of these speculations, but they're counterfactuals, meaning what if? Well, Molinism says God knows the answer to what? To every counterfactual. He has that much knowledge, and therefore all of these things that happen are happening because of man's free choices. So... This heightens man's free choices that God not only knows every choice you have made and will make, but he knows every possibility of choices that you haven't even made, right? Like who's going to dinner tonight? You going to dinner after this tonight? Where are you going to go? You're going, huh? okay, there you go. He's going to save money tonight, right? Now, God knows if he's actually going to go home or not. He actually may go to Christina's Tex-Mex tonight. See, God knows that. He knows whatever choice he's going to make. See, God has the knowledge of all possibilities. Now, if that's, the, if that's true, that's the premise. If God has the knowledge of all what-ifs, then that means how many different worlds could God have created? Unlimited. An infinite number. So of all of the worlds God could have created, could he have created a world, Bill, where you were not saved? He could have, couldn't he? He could have created a world where he knew you were a voodoo guy. Right? That you were a Molinist in one world. Yeah. That's right. What's that? 
You have Mulholland and Mulholland. You might be. God could have, in his sovereignty, created a world where you were in any other infinite number of conditions. So here's why it's called, Molinism is known for a term called middle knowledge. What that means is, God has what's called natural knowledge, which is the knowledge that is required of God to be God. Okay? Middle knowledge is the knowledge of all possibilities. And God accesses out of his middle knowledge the world that he chose to create, which is his actual knowledge, this world. Y'all with me? So of all the possible worlds he could have created, which world did he create? This world. Fully knowing all of the free choices that everyone would have made having been presented with the gospel. Yeah. Okay, give you an example. Um, let's look at uh, look at First Samuel for a second. Okay, look at First Samuel twenty three. I'll give you an Old Testament and a New Testament, and then we'll have to wind it down. First Samuel chapter twenty three. Okay, David is fleeing from Saul. Remember that whole scene? Saul's always out throwing spears and trying to kill him all the time, right? He's fleeing from him. Verse seven. When it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, he said, God has handed him over to me, for he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. So David is in a city called what? Keilah. Keilah. And, and Saul hears about it, and Saul's going to the city now, and he's going to go kill him. Then Saul summoned all the troops to go to war at Keilah and besieged David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. Then David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard that Saul intends to come to Keilah and destroy the town because of me. Will the citizens of Keilah hand me over to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? As your servant has heard. Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant. So what's he asking God? Tell me, tell me the outcome here. The Lord answered him, he will come down. David asked, will the citizens of Keilah hand me over and my men over to Saul? They will, the Lord responded. So David and his men, numbering about 600, left Keilah at once and moved from place to place. So here, David was left with a choice, wasn't he? What was his choice? Stay in Keilah and be captured and killed with his men, or because God gave him a little inside scoop of what would happen if you don't flee, um, you're going to be killed. So it's your choice, David, and David flees. So here's a counterfactual that if I stay, I will be killed. If I go, I will live. Okay, let me give you, let me give you one more, a New Testament one, Bill, okay? Go to Matthew 11. Okay, last one here. I'm one minute over. Hang on. Okay, verse 21, Jesus cries out and he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. What's the counterfactual? What's that? 
if the miracles had been done that you guys have experienced in Tyre and Sidon, they would have done what? They would have repented. But they didn't repent because the miracles weren't done. So Christ himself says, I know what would have happened had this state of affairs occurred, then this would have happened. And that is, and there's, and there's, I mean, they're all over the scriptures. These, if this, then this. Middle knowledge, God's knowing the possibilities of all choices is throughout scripture. So here's how you preserve sovereignty and free will, according to Molinism says that because man has very real choices and God preserves it, God looked at all of the worlds he could have created, worlds of robots where everyone just says, holy, 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 blessed is the Lord, but that's not really love. He could have created a world with no people. He could have just let nature glorify him. Or he could have created a world of free creatures who God looks at the world and he says, ah, in this world, Bill will give his life to Jesus. Walter, in 1987, will give his life to Jesus, and so on and so on. He looks at all of us, and he says, of all the worlds I could create, this is the world that I'm going to glorify myself by. So what has he done? He has preserved all of man's free, real choices, yet who is absolutely in control of the entire thing? God. God is absolutely sovereign over the entire thing, yet preserving human free will. Okay? That's essentially Molinism in nine minutes.